It all started with a card game, something she did often with friends. Sit around, have a few beers or a joint, play cards. That particular night, it was racehorse pinochle. Rachel had walked about a mile to the trailer of the guy who was hosting the game that night, and it was August. That had to have been an uncomfortable walk, her only company being the mosquitoes and horseflies. Once she reached the trailer, there wouldn't be that whoosh of cold air as she opened the door to enter. Like many dwellings in Michigan, it didn't have air conditioning. A lot of Michiganders, particularly the ones in rural areas, figure they can endure the few miserably hot days, considering that by nightfall it cools down enough to be comfortable, even on most summer nights. For some, the luxury of air conditioning is cost prohibitive, as it likely was in the case of the trailer owner, where the card game ensued as the fan hummed out a fragile stream of air in their direction. Wayne Davis was at that card game along with Rachel, as well as Marvin Gabrian and his nephew. By all accounts, Marvin was in a nasty mood by the time the card game broke up. Nasty moods were not uncommon for Marvin. He got uglier the more he drank. Wayne was ready to walk Rachel home when Marvin offered to drive them all home in his convertible. So they all piled in, Rachel in the front passenger seat and Wayne and Mikey in the back. But Marvin didn't stop when they neared Rachel's house. He kept going and going, and then they ended up on a two-track in the woods where he ordered Wayne and Mikey out of the car. Apparently, he was intimidating enough that the men acquiesced. Marvin then drove further into the woods and finally stopped, ordering Rachel out. He said he wanted to take a walk. It's hard to say now exactly why they all felt they had to humor Marvin Gabriel that night, other than the fact that he seems to be the type of person who bullies and cons his way through life, moving people around by sheer force of intimidation. What's clear is that both Wayne and Mikey witnessed what had occurred before he took Rachel off into the woods, and even they were intimidated enough to get out of the car when he ordered them to do so. Wayne would later agree to testify on Rachel's behalf after she turned Gabriel in. We know what happened in the woods because Rachel shared the story with multiple people, including police. Marvin grabbed roughly at her, shoved a hand down her pants and then forced her to the ground. For Marvin Gabriel, this was a date. No matter how many times she told him to get the fuck off, he continued pulling off her clothing and forcing himself inside her. She kicked and flailed and fought, and his response was simply to laugh. When she wouldn't stop struggling, Marvin grabbed Rachel's head and banged it repeatedly against the ground. Then he bit her nose. By that time, she was afraid and exhausted and bleeding, and what she wanted was to get out of this alive, so she let him finish, his fetid breath too near and the mosquitoes joining him and feeding on her skin and on her soul. When it was done and she lay there stunned, fumbling for a cigarette, something to do with her hands while she tried to figure out 
had a segue between rape and getting back to the car so he could take her out of here, out of the woods and safely into the light. You asked for it. You wanted it. You wanted me. Marvin said. No, she cried back at him. No, I didn't. He was incensed by her answer, pouncing on her again, stinking and sweaty from the earlier effort, and he raped her again. Then there would be a third time, and Rachel, not knowing when this would be over, suggested that they go back to her place, thinking that if they got closer to where other people were, she could have a chance to get away. So she played it up. She said a bed would be more comfortable than the dirt. And her ploy, it worked. And when they reached her driveway, she flew out of the car and ran inside, slamming the door behind her. Wayne and Mikey were there waiting for her. Don't let him in! Don't let him in! She screamed, and then she ran to the bathroom and locked the door. Panicked, she fumbled around underneath the sink and found an old hammer. She could hear that somehow he'd gotten inside because there were raised voices coming from the kitchen. When the doorknob on the bathroom turned, she threw herself against the door and she screamed, I'm sick, you broke my nose. Wayne ordered Gabriel out of the house. By this time, with all the screaming and yelling, Rachel's sister woke up and she threatened to call police. Marvin told her to go ahead. In fact, he'd call himself. He said he worked for the police. That's when Rachel came out of the bathroom and urged Marvin to call the cops. Go ahead. Call them. I'll tell them what happened in the woods. Soon after that, Marvin left. Rachel reported the rape the very next day. I think it's important to stop here for a minute and acknowledge something. What an act of bravery that was. She knew who Marvin Gabriel was and what he was capable of. She also knew that he knew where she lived and how easy he could find her. That's an act of bravery, an act of hope, a belief that the authorities would keep her safe. Unfortunately, that is not what happened. From the Color of Night by John and Elsie Timmerman Nuevo County, Michigan is a strangely beautiful, yet almost fearful land. Its muscular forests flex around sodden lowlands. Jungle-like cattail and coiling brush grow tall along swamps as black as dying breath. Stretches of county road interspersed with two-lane blacktop wind through overhanging hardwood. In autumn, the sun-dazzled colors Take your breath away. Pine trees of every sort, some scorched black and gray by wildfires, crouch at the edge of the road. Even those paved roads have surprises and deceptions. At one intersection, the road to the right is signposted as Second Street. The road to the left, 32 Mile. People here don't depend on maps much. An arthritic tracery of gravel roads woven across the county doesn't even make the maps. 
nor do they have names. Often they end in muddy tracks leading to an algae-encrusted pond or stream. Here, the local high school students build campfires and drink beer. Hunting and fishing are the primary industries, drawing others from neighboring states and southern counties to these nearly primeval forests. They come with money. The bars overflow. Traffic at the prostitutes' establishments, mostly cramped trailers, is nonstop. People grow deer bait in the mucky fields, harvest acres of beets and coal carrots that are processed into 50-pound bags stacked up at produce stands along two-lane roads. A bag of gnarled carrots goes for three bucks. The deer don't care what they look like. The total harvest of bait crops in Michigan can run 30 to $40 million a year. Every few years, a deer is found contaminated with chronic wasting disease, a form of transmittable spongiform encephalopathies found in animals' central nervous system and rumored to affect humans who eat venison. Everything stops as Department of Natural Resources officials try to trace the fatal strain. When the hunt stops, so do the bait shops, the whores, and the bars. Farmers backhoe their crops as landfill or simply plow it under. Some tourists fish in the streams and rivers instead, hitting the salmon run from Lake Michigan. The houses along these curving wooded roads change in the blink of an eye. Altogether, there are not many of them. You come across a pocket of small homes in a clearing, or a scattered stand of hunter's cabins at the edge of a wood, a party store or a gas station nearby to service them. Now and then you see larger retreat houses, expensive places set well back from the road and built by refugees from the city. They wear gates and landscaping like skirts. Further along the same road, a group of trailers, some holding themselves together with little more than hope, gather together and form a community. Most of these places are inhabited by ordinary, hard-working folk. They like the space of these north woods, the cheap land cut out of pine and sedum and backfield lowlands. They have steady jobs, picnics and parties. They are intelligent and, by and large, love the land they live on and respect it deeply. in worn clearings, in trailers and houses neglected and weathered beyond belief, live a few of those men and women somehow damaged. They are the ruined remains of wars, of psychological battles, of illnesses of mind and soul, no longer at ease in cities or towns. They need freedom. As much as anything, the unsettled land of Nuego County, its swamps and streams, its hardscrabble farms, its primeval forests that darken the sky, shapes the characters and events of this story. 
It is an easy land to get lost in, and an easy land in which to lose someone. In some, or at least one of these derelict houses, live moral monsters, those whose lives are so twisted by personal desires or hatreds, they can never be straightened again. Those whose darkness seeps through every pore, like some miasmic power that beclouds all they meet. If all humankind carries a spore of evil, these are the ones who have willingly coaxed it to life and let it possess their very being. Fisherman found her body. It was July 5th, 1997. Rachel Temmerman was dead and her baby girl Shannon missing. I've always called it a mud hole in the middle of the woods. There's no bottom in it. I've dropped 150 foot of anchor line in it and never kept, never quit going. You can only imagine what she must have thought. You know, this was her last moments on earth. She knows something's gonna happen. She may not have realized that she's going in the water, but she realized that she's gonna be murdered. She must have been very lonely. Extremely hopeless feeling. I can't imagine the terror she must have felt. And even worse, knowing that she was going to die that way is what she must have been thinking about her one-year-old daughter, Shannon, and what was going to happen to her. Marvin Gabriel's mom defended him. I know Marvin wouldn't hurt a baby, wouldn't hurt a child. I've never heard him attacked an adult unless he had been drinking. One of the most horrible things about this case uh, was how Marvin Gabriel kept torturing Shannon's family and, and Rachel's family. He wrote many letters to Rachel's mother, and one of the letters was, um, it's your fault that, that Rachel's dead. You're going to have to live the rest of your life picturing her sinking into that lake and the, the bubbles rising to the surface. Baby Shannon wasn't the only missing. Three other men with ties to Gabriel had also vanished. Shannon couldn't do anything to hurt Marvin Gabriel. She couldn't talk. She couldn't be a witness. But one thing she would do is tie Marvin to the murder. And Marvin Gabriel would not leave a trail. So he drew the, the, the map of the lake and he drew the boundary line where the uh, federal jurisdiction started. And then he, he put on there three X's and indicated body found one of three. What the map suggests to us is that there are probably more than one body in that lake. Let me tell you how this story started. Said Prosecutor Dan Davis in his opening statement. We're at the trial of Marvin Gabrion for the murder of Rachel Timmerman. On August 7, 1996, Marvin Gabrion raped Rachel Timmerman. She reported to the Nuevo County Sheriff's Department and to Gerber Memorial Hospital. Marvin Gabrion was charged with this rape and scheduled to stand trial on June 5, 1997. Mr. Gabrion didn't want to stand trial but the only way to avoid it was to get rid of Rachel Timmerman. He had to kill her. The government of the United States will prove that Marvin Gabrion murdered Rachel Timmerman. Marvin Gabrion put these handcuffs on Rachel Timmerman. After he had Rachel Timmerman restrained, he covered her eyes and mouth with duct tape. 
but didn't cover her nose. Marvin Gabrion wanted her alive a little longer, so she could feel his torture. Marvin Gabrion used this very chain and these locks to attach these cinder blocks to Rachel Timmerman's body. Then he put her in a boat, rowed several hundred feet out into the lake, and threw Rachel Timmerman to her death in the murky bottom. Rachel Timmerman was 19 years old when she was murdered by Marvin Gabrion. Now let me take you to the tiny town of Altona, where Marvin Gabrion lives. It's June 6th at 4 in the morning. A neighbor saw Marvin Gabrion grinding the serial numbers off a boat. Marvin Gabrion was seen about this time with bruises and scratches on his face. Rachel Timmerman had fought back. Indeed, she had fought for her life. A witness would later take the stand to tell her story about camping at Hungerford Lake near Oxford Lake. She saw Gabriel and his boat, as well as his appearance. Of that, she said, he looked like he'd been beaten up in a fight, and although the weather was quite warm, he was always wearing gloves. The Michigan State Police obtained a search warrant for Marvin Gabriel's residence in Altona. Officers found cinder blocks about the property that are identical to the blocks used to murder Rachel Timmerman. Some of the blocks have paint on them. We found the paint cans. Some of the blocks had tar on them. The tar matched. These locks that Marvin Gabriel used to attach the chains and cinder blocks to Rachel Timmerman will be opened by keys found at Marvin Gabriel's residence. At the time Marvin Gabriel murdered Rachel Timmerman, he had a campsite at Hungerford Lake. Here we found an empty duct tape package. At his campsite, we found baby items and a girl's hair clip. Rachel Timmerman was at this campsite before she died. Lies, 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 Marvin Gabriel muttered angrily. Another witness took the stand, someone who knew Gabriel well, to tell of a random meeting he had with him at a convenience store. As he was walking out, Marvin was walking toward him. He asked how he was doing, and they had a short conversation, during which this witness mentioned that he'd just gotten rid of his girlfriend during a breakup. To this, Gabriel replied, I just got rid of my girlfriend, too. Permanently. I bound her with chains, locks, and cement blocks, and I threw her into a lake. Marvin Gabriel is a monster. Not the cute kind, like when you call your two-year-old a little monster because he appears to be existing solely on a diet of tantrums and goldfish crackers. Gabrion's not the TV kind of monster either. He lacks the charm of Hannibal Lecter. Charm enough, anyway, to sustain your interest past the fact that he ate some of his victims, or at least parts of them. No, Marvin Gabrion is one of those monsters who leaves only ruin and sorrow in his wake and clearly has no empathy for another living soul. He's a liar, he's a manipulator, and he's a murderer. Marvin only cares about himself, and every single one of his known crimes illustrate that fact. He has terrorized a whole lot of people, and we're all lucky that he'll never get out of prison. Unless he escapes, which is an idea that makes me, even with miles and bars between us, shudder to even consider. 
I'm going to read directly from the United States 6th District Court of Appeals decision delivered on May 28, 2013, by Chief Judge Kethledge, because he did a fine job of summarizing the twists and turns of a complicated case that has been winding its way through the court system for a couple decades. Only just recently did he lose his final appeal. On the morning of August 7, 1996, Rachel Timmerman arrived at her mother's trailer home in Nuego County, Michigan, hysterical and bleeding from a laceration on her nose. She said that a man named Marvin Gabrian had raped her the night before. Timmerman was then 19 years old and had given birth to a baby girl, Shannon Verhage, just six weeks earlier. Rachel told her mother that she was afraid to press charges because Gabrian had said that if she did, he would kill both her and her baby. But that afternoon, Rachel reported the rape to the Nuevo County Sheriff. Two months later, the county prosecutor charged Gabrian with the rape. For the next three months, however, the police were unable to find him. On January 20, 1997, the sheriff's deputies found and arrested Gabrian. They gave him an arrest warrant that named three witnesses for the rape charge. Timmerman herself, Wayne Davis, an associate of Gabrian's, who had been with him the night of the rape, and Gabrian's teenage nephew, Mikey. Marvin Gabrian was jailed after his arrest, but was released after a friend posted bond for him on February 3rd. He lied and told his friend that he was in jail for a DUI. Timmerman herself was in jail for a minor drug charge when Gabrian was released, but another witness, Wayne Davis, was free for the time being. Within days of Gabrian's release, Gabrian made his way to Davis's residence in White Cloud, Michigan. Davis himself was set to report to jail on February 13, 1997 for a 90-day term resulting from his own DUI charge. His friend, Darlene Lazo, had agreed to drive Davis to jail that morning. The afternoon before Davis was scheduled to report, Lazo encountered Gabrian at Davis's home, working on a car. When Lazo arrived the next morning to give Davis a ride to jail, he was missing. Left behind on a kitchen chair was an army jacket that Davis always wore. His personal effects in the house likewise seemed untouched, except that his stereo equipment was missing. Davis was never seen alive again. A few weeks after his disappearance, Gabrian tried to sell Davis's stereo equipment at a local consignment shop with the serial numbers ground off. On May 5, 1997, Rachel Timmerman was released from jail. Twice that month, she encountered Marvin Gabrian and called the sheriff's office in a panic afterwards, saying that she thought he would kill her. Meanwhile, a young friend of Gabrian's, John Weeks, repeatedly called Timmerman to ask her on a date. Rachel did not know that Weeks was calling at Gabrian's direction. Finally, on June 3rd, two days before Gabrian's rape trial was set to begin, Rachel told her father that a boy had invited her to dinner that night and that she would be home in a couple hours. She said she was bringing her baby along because the boy had specifically asked her to. Rachel's father never saw either of them alive again. The day after Timmerman's disappearance, Several other people saw her with Gabrian and another man in the vicinity of Oxford Lake, which lies partly in the Manistee National Forest. 
in early June, almost certainly on June 4th, Bonnie Robertson was driving away from her farm in the vicinity of Oxford Lake. As she approached a one-lane bridge, she encountered an old pickup truck driving fast the other way toward the lake. Inside the truck were two men with a large blonde woman sitting between them. This description matched Rachel Timmerman. The driver, she said, seemed to be very angry about something. A metal boat was sticking out of the truck's bed. Kathy Kirk similarly testified that she and her mother had parked at Oxford Lake, near the mud ramp, when an old pickup truck with a boat sticking out the back pulled up alongside them. Gabrian was driving, and a young blonde woman, whose photo Kirk later saw on the news, was sitting between him and another man, who was almost certainly John Weeks. Twice the blonde woman looked up at Kirk and then looked down again. Soon, Kirk and her mother drove off. Finally, again on June 4th, Pearl and Bob Hall were driving along a narrow two-track road toward Oxford Lake. As they got near the lake, an old pickup truck with a boat sticking out came fast the other way. This time, Gabriel was driving alone, looking like he was really mad. As Gabriel drove past, it sounded like there was stuff in the boat to make it rattle. Hall had to pull off into the bushes to avoid a collision. When the Halls got down to the lake, they saw marks in the mud ramp, where someone had recently dragged out a boat. One evening later the same week, Gabrian and John Weeks approached several campers at a nearby campground. Gabrian introduced himself as Lance, an alias he frequently used, and asked whether he could store his boat at the other camper's site, explaining that his own site was too crowded to keep it there. They agreed. One of the campers, Dan Bassett said that Gabriel was skittish, nervous, and didn't talk much. Bassett also said that Gabriel always wore gloves, even though it was warm out. Bassett later came upon Gabriel's campsite while looking for firewood. Gabriel was standing by the fire with gloves on. The campsite was nowhere near the area where Gabriel had said it was, and it had plenty of room to store a boat. Around 3.30 a.m. on June 6th, two days after Gabrian was last seen with Timmerman near Oxford Lake, one of Gabrian's neighbors in town awoke to the sound of a very loud bang. He looked out the window and saw Gabrian dragging a metal boat on his gravel driveway. Once Gabrian got the boat to the side of the garage, he saw him remove two life vests, three concrete blocks, and a length of chain. Then Gabrian pulled the boat into the garage and ground off the boat's registration numbers. Almost a month later, on July 5th, Douglas Sorter and his son-in-law, Nathan, prepared to launch a small fishing boat at the same ramp that Gabriel had visited. They saw an object floating about 100 yards offshore. They looked at the object through binoculars and thought it appeared to be a human torso they decided to investigate. The weeds between the ramp and the object were too thick to row through, so Mr. Sorter rowed to the south and then circled back toward the object. As they came close, they saw feet protruding from the water. Sorter said they hoped it was a dummy of some kind. Then the odor hit them, and they realized the object was a human body. The body was face up with a concrete block attached to the front near the waist. The body was fully clothed. 
Rachel's left leg and waist were tightly bound with a shiny metal chain and two padlocks. A second concrete block was also attached to the body through the chain. Rachel's wrists were handcuffed tightly behind her back. Her eyes and mouth were bound with duct tape. Her nose had been left uncovered. The water in that area was about three feet deep, with 82 feet of soft muck beneath it. About one-third of the body was covered in muck. The body had surfaced as a result of bacterial gassing. Gabriel's whereabouts at that time were unknown, but the police promptly began investigating him as a suspect. They executed a search warrant, and at his residence they found two keys that matched the padlocks on Rachel's body. They also found concrete blocks that were stained with the same tar and paint materials as the blocks attached to Rachel's body. Gabriel's nephew Mikey led sheriff's deputies to a campsite that his uncle frequently used. The site was north of Oxford Lake, down a two-track in a dense remote area. Gabriel's tent was still pitched there. Scattered about, they found bolt cutters, another length of shiny chain, duct tape, a woman's hair clip, and silicone nipples for a baby bottle. Meanwhile, the FBI in upstate New York were already investigating Gabriel in connection with the theft of Social Security benefits belonging to a mentally disabled man from Grand Rapids named Robert Allen. Allen had disappeared in 1995 and was never seen again. Shortly after his disappearance, a man who identified himself as Allen, but whom a post office employee later identified as Gabriel, opened a post office box in Sherman, New York, and directed that Allen's benefit check be sent there each month. Gabriel also signed over one of Allen's checks as payment for rent in early 1996. In October of 1997, the Detroit FBI got word that Gabriel was headed to Sherman to collect Allen's check for that month. An FBI SWAT team staked out the Sherman Post Office on October 14th. When Gabriel arrived, the agents arrested him. He was carrying a Virginia driver's license in the name of Ronald Lee Strevels at the time. The body of Rachel Timmerman's 11-month-old daughter, Shannon Verhage, has never been found, but it is virtually undisputed that Gabriel killed her. While awaiting trial for Rachel's murder, Gabriel gave another prisoner a map of Oxford Lake, on which he had written, Body of Three, One Found. While incarcerated, Gabriel also told two inmates that he killed the baby because there was nowhere else to put it. I find myself wondering how many other victims Marvin Gabriel encountered that summer because it is hard to imagine him not continuing to commit the types of crimes that appear to have been second nature to him, a lot of which centered around him killing anyone who was a threat to his freedom. They had the entire area surrounded. Three months after Rachel's body was found, Gabriel surfaced outside a small town post office in western New York. They must have had all the FBI agents here and that they have in western New York. He knew something was up and he started to run but the FBI agents caught him. It was relieved that we had the monster off the streets. Uh, we were not in a position to charge him with a homicide yet. We had so much work yet to be done. But we had the felony charge and the social security checks. So we had him locked down. And we were hopeful at that point more information come forward on the child. The 
Mr. Dave Brown, do you know where the whereabouts of Shannon? Cadaver dogs that we used at Oxford Lake kept indicating there were more human remains down there. Uh, we couldn't find those. Police searched the same lake for Shannon, believing Gabrion had dumped her there with her mom. But some still hold out hope she's alive. Baby Shannon wasn't the only missing. Three other men with ties to Gabrion had also vanished, as had Gabrion himself. He had several alter egos. He bought and sold property, vehicle, insurance policies, and other people's names just to avoid being identified. Basically, he stole Robert Allen's identity and got his monthly benefits. And at the same time, Robert Allen disappeared. We didn't know where he was. We tried to contact the family and learned that he also had not been seen by family since 1995. So he'd been missing for two years at that point. We were able to document that Lance or Marvin never went to Texas and that uh, John, to my recollection, lacked the mobility. I don't think he had a proper vehicle. I could even get him down there. So I suspected that there's one more for us, you know. If we didn't catch him soon, we knew other people were going to be in trouble. There were still witnesses in a rape case, other witnesses who might have put him with John Weeks or Wayne Davis. Marvin Gabriel was grinding something off of a, uh, a, an aluminum rowboat, and he said when Marvin got done doing that, he threw a length of chain and three cement blocks into the rowboat and left. Suggesting that strongly that Marvin had made more than one visit to that lake. He might have tried to do something else with the baby, give it to somebody, sell it, whatever. I mean, that was bandied around. I thought that that was a possibility. At that point in the investigation, there was hope in people's mind. By this point, Gabrion was being charged with social security fraud, fleeing a drunk driving charge, and was the main suspect in the murder of Rachel Timmerman, and suspected in the disappearance of her baby. Marvin had promised Rachel that if she told anyone about the rape, he'd kill her baby while she watched, and then he'd kill her too. So I have to assume that's exactly what he did. During the time of the six-month rape investigation, Rachel had a parole violation for a minor drug offense, pot, and she was forced to serve a few months in jail. Not long after she was released, Rachel went missing. But not before she had called the police numerous times, telling them that Marvin Gabriel was stalking her and that she was afraid of him. In the last 911 call, she sounded resigned, which makes this whole thing even more unbelievably heartbreaking. Rachel said, I just want there to be a record. Marvin Gabriel is going to kill me. After stalking her himself for a couple weeks, unable to get her alone, Marvin apparently enlisted the help of a man named John Weeks, who befriended Rachel and eventually asked her out on a date. He even asked her to bring along her daughter. He seems nice, she thought. They'd go out to dinner and be fun. But it was all a subterfuge. Rachel and her baby were taken as hostages. Rachel was forced to write multiple letters, one to her father stating that she was leaving town with the man of her dreams. Another went to the prosecutor stating that she had lied about the rape and it was she who had wanted to perform oral sex on Gabriel 
but when Marvin wouldn't have sex with her, she spit the semen from her mouth and rubbed it in her vagina. That letter also said that it was Gabriel's dog that had bit Rachel on the nose and that she had pinched herself to cause all the bruises. Three feet of water with 82 feet of muck. That's how Oxford Lake is described. According to the prosecution's theory of the case, Rachel died in a way that none of us can even begin to comprehend. Marvin Gabriel handcuffed her wrists behind her back. He put duct tape over her eyes and mouth, specifically leaving her nose uncovered. He wrapped metal chains around her body, tightly, and attached two concrete blocks. Then he dragged her into a boat, rowed her to a spot on the lake, and dumped her in alive. However Marvin Gabriel got those injuries that the witnesses saw, the bruises and scratches on his face, those happened before he bound her up. Rachel fought, but Marvin won. Marvin Gabriel made some telling choices, every one of which, according to the prosecution, did not include rendering her unconscious before he did what he did. That's not how he wanted this to go down. He wanted her to feel it. The metal against her wrists, the tape tied against her skin and the weight of concrete blocks chained to her. She heard it all. The chains, the handcuffs, the tape ripping, the sound of the oars slicing through the water, and whatever bullshit was coming out of the mouth of that fucking monster. Rachel went into that water alive, and then she sunk straight down under the weight of those cinder blocks, dozens of feet into the muck. Thankfully, only God and the monster know what Rachel heard of what her daughter endured, because I'm certain that neither will ever tell. The possibilities are almost unbearable to consider. The crying of a baby for her helpless mother who is incapable of protecting that little life she created and Rachel sobbing when she comes to understand what's about to happen to her. I will go to my grave hoping whatever those last moments of baby Shannon were, Rachel was not privy to them. There is no fear of physical pain that any person knows is coming their way that could even come close to the anguish that you'd feel knowing that that same pain will be inflicted upon your child. There is pain, and then there is the searing hot gash of agony that only the true understanding of a thing so evil can inflict. And we also don't know what led up to the fates of the other victims that many people believe are attributed to Marvin Gabriel, but I assume he wasn't any less cruel to them. Baby Shannon was never found. Neither were Robert Allen or John Weeks. Robert James Allen was the Grand Rapids transient whose identity and social security checks Gabriel had stolen. John Weeks, the man who had lured Rachel on a date at the behest of Gabriel, was also never found. Gabriel has never been charged with any of their disappearances, Robert Allen, John Weeks, 
or Rachel's daughter, Shannon. But one body related to her case was eventually found. Wayne Davis, who'd been there that night, the night she was raped, and had agreed to testify on her behalf. Wayne was generally known as a good guy, a disabled veteran who was always around if someone needed a hand. His last act of support ended up getting him killed. Wayne was eventually found by canoers floating in Twinwood Lake in Nuego County in July of 2002, almost five years to the day that Rachel went missing. But I spoke to someone who says he found that body first. When I came back, I don't know, I had heard about Marv. Somebody called me in Florida and told me about it. And it was actually on our local news down there. So I turned the camp on and, uh, and seen Marv on there. And then we moved back a few years after that. And I was fishing in that lake because it lake's a good lake to fish, you know. And I was with my daughter, and I actually snagged his body. What? John and Elsie Timmerman are Rachel Timmerman's father and uncle, and together they wrote a book about her tragic death. As someone who lives in the area, I was mesmerized as I read the accuracy with which their words colored the pages. It's called The Color of Night, and I highly recommend it. I'll put a link to it on Amazon in the show notes. Stay tuned. Comfort to you, comfort to you. We ain't got nothing to do with where you are. Or where you've been, or where you're going. Comfort to you, comfort to you. Has got something to do.
makes no difference with or without it, you know You're gonna be, you're gonna be fine either way Comfort to you, comfort to you Goes right through you and travels away Why would it stay? It travels away from your love to your pain Where it remains Until you know that all you know 